Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Having a hard time keeping up with the latest in Washington? From tax plans to health care, lawmakers on Capitol Hill have a lot to accomplish before the end of the year. Today, Connecticut 2nd District Congressman Joe Courtney joins us in studio to answer your questions. Courtney, a Democrat, was first elected to the U.S. House in 2006. He's a member of several committees, including Armed Services, ranking member of the Sea Power and Projection Forces Subcommittee, where he advocates for federal contracts that benefit submarine builder Electric Boat in Groton. He's also helped secure investment dollars for sub-base New London. Congressman Courtney, welcome back to the show. Good to be here, Lucy. Now, our conversation is also being broadcast on Facebook Live. Just search where we live. If you have a comment for Congressman Courtney, you can type it in the comment field below the live video stream, or you can talk to us the old-fashioned way by phone. Our studio number is 860-275-7266. Find us on Twitter, at Where We Live. So let's just jump right in. We've got the the big GOP tax plan. And uh, last Thursday, we know the U.S. House uh, passed this bill. You voted against it. Before we find out why, I wanted to play a clip from President Trump describing the GOP tax proposal. And that's why we're working to give the American people a giant tax cut for Christmas. We are giving them a big, beautiful Christmas present in the form of a tremendous tax cut. So President Trump wants to see this bill on his desk by Christmas. You've got some major reservations. Tell us why. Yeah, unfortunately for a lot of people, it'll be coal in their stocking. Uh, when when this uh, bill, uh, if it ever passes, as we know, there's about a half dozen senators that are very um, shaky right now in terms of uh, what came out of the Senate Finance Committee early Thursday morning last week. Um, you know, again, there's a, there's a number of sort of um, issues here, as uh, we learned again overnight. You know, all the, a third outside group calculated the um, long-term impact in terms of the deficit for our country and, again, confirmed that it's going to be well over a trillion dollars uh, over the next 10 years. Again, there's been the Tax Policy Center was last night. There's uh, a, a number of other really respected neutral groups. The Tax Foundation, which is a conservative uh, uh, analyst, also found the same thing. You know, again, th- there are times when, you know, uh, the economy is in a recession or struggling uh, where, a, you know, some deficit spending over a short period of time can be justified. Keynesian economics, which I think, you know, some upset some of your listeners. But uh, again, I, I actually, you know, think that that is a, a valid um, approach. But in this case, what we're talking about is a structural deficit uh, to help pay for tax cuts that really I don't think do much in terms of stimulating growth. Uh, Again, eliminating uh, the estate tax for 0.2% of the American population, uh, I I just think that 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 just defies any um, analysis that that's going to really benefit uh, in terms of job growth or uh, investment in the U.S. economy, for example. So there's there's that sort of overarching um, issue in terms of you know what what is the the what the payback for something that is that damaging in terms of uh, our overall fiscal health. Secondly, in terms of tax incidents, in other words, where do the tax falls? Mm-hmm. Uh, again, too many middle class families are going to take it in the back of the neck, and um, you know in Connecticut, where we are a state where 
a large number of middle-class families itemize on their deductions. They don't do it um, because they enjoy you know, the complexity of it, but there's clearly targeted benefits with some of these itemized deductions, whether it's state and local taxes, um, medical expenses, uh, student loans, uh, interest payments that uh, are all being swept away in this measure. And what you get back for it is an increase of a standard deduction, which, uh, again, there are some uh, folks out there that you know, the math may work for them, but really on a pretty sort of marginal basis in terms of what kind of savings they would get. And um, for a lot of people, like a woman I spoke to in Old Saybrook a couple nights ago whose husband has Alzheimer's uh, and is in a facility that they're dishing out uh, between $150,000 and $200,000 this year, losing that medical expense deduction is a just an enormous um, hit on somebody who's doing the right thing. I mean, they're paying their bills and they're taking care of someone with a very serious chronic illness, which is why that deduction was created to begin with. Uh, the state and local tax, uh, um, there's been a lot in the press, and, and Connecticut is, is clearly um, a state that would really uh, take a big hit as a result of that. We're a donor state already. $8 billion goes uh, to Washington every year that uh, more than we get back, uh, despite you know some of the good news down at the shipyard. Um, and, uh, and this will aggravate that because it's just going to raise people's tax bill because of losing um, that deduction. And, and again, the, the last thing I'll just say really quick, this economy right now where we, we are sort of hovering near full employment by many uh, measurements, we need to be focusing on giving people skills to take advantage of a lot of job openings that are out there in the economy. And this not only doesn't do anything for that, it actually goes backwards in terms of eliminating some of the tax incentives for employers, workers, students to uh, get skilled up to take advantage of job openings. And, and to me, that should be our number one focus right now as a Congress and as a country. And that's not happening in this tax bill. You mentioned the Tax Policy Center. This is a nonpartisan uh, tax analysis group. Uh, its report on the GOP tax plan says that all income groups would see tax reductions on average under the Senate bill in 2019. Then 9% of taxpayers would pay higher taxes that year than under current law. By 2027, the proportion would grow to 50%. So largely because the personal tax cuts expire in 2026, that's which Republicans did to curb budget deficits the bill would create. So while it sounds good in right. the beginning, it's the, the benefits to the middle class, as you say, would be very limited um, years out. And it undercuts the, the, the argument this is about simplifying the tax code because, you know, it, it, to have this sort of shoots and ladders uh, tax rate uh, built into it uh, obviously is, you know, makes your head spin in terms of just uh, trying to evaluate and plan as a family or as an individual, you know, about um, life decisions. Now, you mentioned um, uh, how this bill, this uh, GOP tax plan is going to impact college students, um, looking at also um, how it would harm apprenticeship programs. Let's get more detailed on it. Let's first talk about um, repealing student loan interest deductions, also how this could hit graduate students. Can you walk us sure. through some of the basics? So, yeah, last Wednesday night when I had two minutes to speak on the floor, that was my focus. Because, again, I really think this gets to the you know real um, guts of Connecticut, which is that we succeed based on what's between our ears. And, and to the extent that we're creating barriers for people to take advantage of uh, college or graduate school uh, or apprenticeship programs, you know, we're really um, shooting ourselves in the foot here. The bill eliminates the uh, interest deduction, interest payment deduction 
for college students, which, uh, according to the you know all the analysis, is about an additional seventy-one billion dollars uh, burden to to people who are borrowing to to pay for college, which is a lot of people. I mean, there's about fifteen million students across the country that use the Stafford Student Loan Program, uh, and that interest rate deduction is a, is one of the few ways that you can manage your debt in terms of trying to take some of the brunt of that when after you graduate. Again, that was eliminated uh, in this bill. Secondly, um, tuition waivers, which for a graduate student up at UConn who's a researcher or a teaching assistant, again, one of the ways that um, they can sort of deal with um, the fact that their income level is not, you know, out in the workplace, out in the economy, um, that they are not charged interest, excuse me, they're not charged tuition while they're there. So, and, and that is waived as taxable income. This actually will basically treat that tuition benefit as a tax, as a taxable income. So, if you're, um, you know, a graduate student, that's about twenty five, thirty thousand dollars that's being added to your taxable income. You're not getting any cash, or, or, or you know, a salary uh, for that. So that is a total pure uh, hit in terms of uh, extra tax that you have to pay. We have gotten hundreds of emails from from uh, stores uh, into my office. Uh, from you know, people who are uh, by and large doing the stuff that we want in our economy. Sixty percent of the tuition waivers are in STEM: science, technology, engineering, and math. I mean, really, that is a universal um, consensus policy for educators and employers out there. That you know, those are the skills that we need to be promoting. That's where the highest income uh, jobs are out there in the economy, and uh, this just again obliterates. What is one of the the, the effective ways that um, institutions like UConn, Yale, again across the board, um, help sort of get people into graduate programs and take their skills to to a higher level? Lastly, uh, um, employer-assisted uh, tuition, which again, from you know, healthcare to manufacturing to finance, again, if you've got a, a young employee with a real spark and that you know can really benefit from going to school, uh, again, that's a, a, a benefit that they can offer and it's not taxable. And that's being, uh, again, that uh, tax exemption is being eliminated. It was amazing to watch this coalition just come up out of nowhere. It's like a pop-up you know, uh, uh, group. Uh, and and the the breadth of uh, employers and educational institutions that um, united around this was just incredible. And you know that uh, this really smart policy to to really again hone and improve uh, employee skills is is being eliminated. And again, apprenticeships are are one of those um, apprenticeship programs and mentor you know that are built around trades. Uh, is again one of the examples of where employers have used that um, to to really strengthen their workforce. Second District Congressman Joe Courtney is in studio with us on Where We Live. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Also find us on Facebook Live. Just search Where We Live, and you can put your question or comment uh, in the comments field. Uh, Cody is calling from Portland. Cody, you're on the show. Hi. I think you actually just answered my question. Thank you for having me on the show. But I was wondering... What would happen um, under the GOP tax bill with um, what would happen with regards to employee compensation for uh, graduate programs and things like that? Well, yeah, we just you know ran ran through the list there, and um, as I said, we we got about eighteen hundred emails and calls, and the the window that this bill is considered was about thirteen days and about. Eight of those were nine of those were business days, and to get that kind of volume, 
and again, these were not sort of, you know, click a petition kind of emails. I mean, these were people who were sitting down and, and really, you know, thinking and, and writing their own personal story. And, and that tuition waiver and the uh, employee uh, educational assistance was, uh, you know, very much high on the depth chart in terms of the volume that we got. So there's the House bill that passed, and now it's going to be before the Senate uh, after the Thanksgiving recess. I mean, how are these bills different, and how can uh, lawmakers, I mean, they have people who benefit from the programs we're just talking about in their districts, whether they're Republican or or Democrat. How can they reconcile that with this proposal? So again, it's moving at mock speed, which uh, again, by itself is really the warning flag should be up because the law of unintended consequences happens when you rush things. And we're talking about the biggest rewrite of the tax code since 1986. Again, the Senate Finance Committee party line vote reported out around midnight or early morning hours um, last Thursday their version. There are just differences. Again, the uh, House bill capped the, um, you know, the, the local tax deduction deductibility uh, so that, uh, again, folks who uh, pay property taxes up to $10,000 can still deduct um, in the House bill. In the Senate bill, they eliminate um, even that uh, measure of protection so that for, again, a state like Connecticut, that's like going in the wrong direction. <laughs> so in, in terms of now you, you get no deductibility mm-hmm. for state and local. Uh, on the other hand, they uh, restored the uh, medical um, expense deduction. And um, and it's not clear, frankly, on the education side. I mean, the, the, this thing is moving so fast, trying to sort of keep up with what the, the latest changes are. But those are actually just those two, for example, it's a pretty big, um, you know, sort of delta between the two sides. And it shows how, you know, if you try and protect, you know, one group in terms of the medical expense, um, you're going to, you know, hurt the, the groups that pay, have high property taxes. And, um, and they, they also somewhat phase in the uh, estate tax elimination on the Senate side. Um, and the same thing with corporate tax cut. They delay it a year. And as you point out, they've got the, you know, the shoots and ladders on the, on the personal rates here. So the, the, these bills are actually um, very um, – they've got a lot of, um, you know, gaps between the two sides. And, you know, the president said he wants to do it by Christmas. I mean, maybe they can. I, I, you know, I, um, there's a lot of political impetus that's driving this, as we all know. They, they, they feel the need to deliver um, – you know, something that was sort of on the campaign trail last November. But again, if you go back to 1986 when Ronald Reagan was president and Tip O'Neill and, Dan, you know, it, it was a well over a year process, very open and transparent, normal order. And, and frankly, that's been totally uh, brushed aside. And, and that's when you're going to have problems. Let's talk about health care. We know that there have been Republican proposal, re- proposals to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Um, there was a provision in the Senate bill to repeal the individual mandate or requirement for people to have health insurance. Uh, now we're hearing from the Washington Post that President Trump's budget director said that the White House is willing to remove this contentious provision, taking aim at the ACA, if they can get that tax bill signed by, by Christmas. What are your concerns? Well, again, this is a perfect example of where, you know, it, it, they're looking for that 50th vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's driving um, decisions that really have a profound impact on, you know, Americans all across the country. And that's not the way to do it. I mean, to be just blunt about it, the um, Congressional Budget Office calculated that that provision that you just decided would result in 13 million people losing their insurance. Um, it would destabilize insurance markets even more. Again, talking about the pop-up coalitions that um, this bill is, is uh, driving, that happened within 
really half a day uh, of uh, of that provision being announced, which again, all the uh, healthcare stakeholders that united in opposition to repeal are now sort of back in the game again. They, you know, at some point, I guess we're taking assurances that they were going to leave that alone. You know, which the leadership in the House and Senate was was telling people just you know a matter of weeks ago. Uh, the uh, scoring of that provision generates some savings, and uh, and I think that is partly what's what's uh, going on there in the Senate is that they're they're you know going to try and plug that in as a pay for to um, maybe um, eliminate some of the more uh, difficult provisions that were in the House bill. But that again, that's just you know we're we're, we're playing squeeze a balloon. We're not playing you know real sort of measured tax policy. So the idea by repealing the individual mandate, uh, less people are insured, and then the government doesn't have to pay the subsidies uh, for this care. Right. Uh, you had mentioned also, I think, Medicare proposal to right. expand. Uh, um, we've heard uh, Senator Bernie Sanders mention uh, Medicare for all or, or single payer. But how is your propo- the proposal that you're backing different and how would that help? So, again, I, I think w- the, the message that I think came through loud and clear from the American public during the whole nine or ten month um, ordeal on, on repeal and, and replace was that um, – what they wanted, what I think most people want, is fixes and ways to uh, address, you know, really some of the problems in the Affordable Care Act, which uh, I think, again, any rational person understands that there are. I mean, there isn't any law. And one of the biggest problems is that the, if you look at the rates that just came out this year on the exchange in Connecticut, because we, we have still have three-to-one age rating, under the Affordable Care Act, again, that they re, re, they compacted the age rating, which used to be five to one, six to one, down to three to one. But that's still a big jump that happens when you turn age fifty in in the exchanges. That your your premiums are um, in some cases significantly higher uh, because of just again the fact that 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 is allowed to be you know an underwriting um, calculation. To, to address that problem, which, again, hits individuals and small businesses the hardest, um, about 50 of us have a bill to um, basically allow a Medicare buy-in for individuals, which would allow them to, uh, at age 50 and up, to elect to, to uh, pay the premium for a Medicare plan, which, uh, you know, the numbers that we've run through the Kaiser family uh, is that it, that would be about a 40% savings in premium uh, compared to what you can get on the uh, the health exchanges. That's big, you know, that's real money. And Medicare obviously is a well-established program. You know, provider acceptance is goes back now over 50 years. Um, and uh, and we would allow that to also be used by small business owners because, again, as someone who used to be a small employer, I can remember that when I had a staff person in my office hit the age 50 or 55, you know, when you got your quotes for the next year, that's what drove um, and spiked up uh, premiums. So allowing small businesses to also use Medicare as an option for 50-plus uh, employees is uh, – Again, a way I think of helping a lot of them the complaints that legitimate complaints that are out there. This is not a, a, a mandate. This is not a replacement of the entire system. So it's not the full um, single payer. Correct. But I, you know, I think um, you know we just saw a poll just a couple of days ago that actually uh, measured this, um, and there was like eighty percent support for for this kind of um, optional. Uh, choice that we would provide out there for a program that uh, we know actually would result in savings for for, for folks. 
Uh, before we head to break, again, we've been talking about the Republican uh, tax bill with 2nd District Congressman Joe Courtney. If you have a question, you can join the conversation this hour, 860-275-7266. Aridia is calling from Groton. Aridia, go ahead with your question. Thank you for taking my call. Um, my question has to do with the uh, tuition. Um, I'm just curious if the GI Bill or the Connecticut uh, tuition waiver program uh, for veterans would be affected. Would that be considered a uh, taxable income? Thank you for asking that. Uh, the answer is no. I mean, the, the uh, tuition waiver is a very sort of specific provision in the tax code for graduate students um, that, again, you know, we want to, you know, get smart people in places like UConn out there as teaching assistants and doing research uh, projects because UConn is now becoming one of the top research universities in, in the country. So it, that's a very, you know, laser-like focus, but it's a big deal if, you, if you're a graduate student, if you're suddenly being told your taxable income is going up $25,000, $30,000. But the GI Bill is um, safe and secure. We actually passed a bipartisan bill earlier this Congress that, um, you know, fixed some problems, particularly for National Guard uh, folks' eligibility. And, um, and as you probably know, um, you know, it's really, I think, one of the most successful programs. Um, and I'm very proud to have been back there in 2010, uh, excuse me, 2008, when we uh, passed the post-9-11 bill because it, it just created a lot of new opportunities. It's a transferable benefits for children, uh, for eligible service members, and um, it's a great success. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, Joe Courtney's here with us. You can follow the conversation on Facebook Live. Leave questions for Congressman Courtney there. You can also call in 860-275-7266. After the break, we're going to talk about defense spending and some other issues and continue to take your calls. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Last week, the U.S. House passed a $700 billion defense spending bill. The Senate's expected to take it up after Thanksgiving. Now, securing federal dollars for defense spending is an important issue for Connecticut's second congressional district with sub-base New London and sub-builders Electric Boat in the southeast part of the state. In studio with us today is Congressman Joe Courtney. Our conversation is also on Facebook Live. Just search where we live. You can ask Representative Courtney a question in a couple of ways on the on Facebook in the comments section. Also, you can call in at 860 Zero two seven five seven two six six. Find us on Twitter at where we live, uh, Congressman Courtney. Before we get into uh, what's in the defense spending bill and how it helps uh, Connecticut, I did want to bring up uh, naval preparedness. Uh, there were several um, incidents uh, within the U.S. Navy, two deadly collisions that um, took the lives of of sailors, including uh, two here in Connecticut. I wanted you to to talk a little bit about what you have heard um, from the U.S. Navy. I know there were hearings. You're a ranking member on the Sea Power and Projection Forces Subcommittee. How did this happen, and what steps are being taken to uh, ensure that this doesn't happen again? Sure. Well, thank you for asking um, this question, because as I said, this um, hits really close to home, and um, two wonderful young men, wonderful families, and, and at the outset, it just should never have happened. I mean, we're not talking about ships that were in a combat zone. Um, they were, um, you know, on, at, particularly in both instances, because they were close to ports of friends and allies, you know, in, in a, at a sort of routine sort of patrolling um, time period. And um, so in the wake of it, um, the chief of naval operations, John Richardson, uh, and his uh, vice CNO, uh, William Moran, ordered a, um, 
you know, 60 day review, which we've we've gotten that back already, and we've had two briefings uh, at CPower uh, where we've uh, kind of gone through um, what the the initial findings are. There's going to be also sort of like the police report um, that's just about um, getting finished, and, and again, having. Uh, seen these in the past. We had a collision with a submarine actually about uh, seven years ago, the Hartford, over in the Straits of uh, Hormuz. And it, it, the uh, TikTok in the analysis is incredibly um, intense. And then lastly, the new Secretary of the Navy, Richard Spencer, is also uh, going to be coming out with his own um, sort of uh, uh, report within probably sometime in December. The report shows, number one, these are concentrated in one area, which is the 7th Fleet in Western Pacific. Um, and it's not happening in, in the Atlantic. It's not happening in the Middle East, where, again, we've got Navy ships out there doing hard work and great sailors and officers. And and that's really where I think, you know, the um, it's the surface fleet that's where it's happening. Um, you know, I think that's really what I think the, the real bothersome question is, is just, you know, there's something going on here that is is uh, different, and the report uh, came out with 57 recommendations to change, um, you know, the way things are are being done. Some of them are already being implemented. Frankly, sleep schedules, because both of these happened um, in early hours, um, and uh, you know that's that's being looked at. Um, there uh, is a lot being done in terms of just the qualifications for. Um, sailors in terms of making sure that people are actually certified uh, in terms of seamanship, navigation, you know, sort of the nuts and bolts of uh, operating ships uh, before they're put on the helm uh, and uh, being confronted with very kind of busy ports and, and activity that's out there right now. And then there's another sort of overarching issue about the fact that our, our fleet and the seventh fleet is called a forward deployed fleet. They, they don't come home for training and and um, repairs the way uh, the other um, different fleets around the the world uh, do and um, and that's part of the problem here is that the these ships were being sent out there and and to put it as clearly as I can they, they just were cutting corners in terms of um, you know putting people in, in positions who uh, again had not gotten their certifications which is almost like getting a driver's license you know before you get behind the wheel of a car. And again, what's happening with a lot of these ships is that they are upgrading the technology all the time. So they're putting in new sonars, they're putting in new um, equipment that, uh, you know, even the most experienced sailor needs to get sort of spend some time learning before, um, you know, you send them underway. The, the pace of deployment out there in the Western Pacific is very intense. I mean, the South China Sea is, as we know, you know, a very contested area, North Korea, so the sort of heel-to-toe deployment of these ships is putting a lot of pressure on the operational commander to get them out there. But, but they are not really making sure that the ships are ready to go uh, when they're doing that. And, and again, that's going to be something that Congress needs to address because there are, frankly, some statutory issues that are creating that sort of conflicted arrangement that's there. In the submarine fleet, anytime they install new equipment, if you're a sonar man, if you're somebody uh, in, in the, you know, operation um, command, you know, area of the ship, you lose your qualifications. You've got to start over from scratch, and that sub does not deploy until everybody has, you know, been signed off. And, and you know, the, the margin for error when you're operating in an environment that does not sustain human life, I mean, that you, you've got to do it that way. And, frankly, I think a lot of those um, 
sort of restrictions and controls need to be applied to the surface fleet, particularly in the in the Western Pacific. You mentioned longer deployments. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, sleep deprivation. Yep. Uh, we have a clip of uh, U.S. Senator John McCain, again, chair of the Armed Services Committee. This was the September hearing yes. uh, into this um, chief of naval operations, Admiral John Richardson, who you mentioned. Uh, Senator McCain is asking uh, the admiral whether it's true that some sailors are working 100-hour weeks. Sir, I'll uh, not deny that. Uh, the sailors are working very hard. Uh, we have been doing some uh, work study, uh, uh, sort of workday type of studies. Uh, we've got some, rec- particularly in the DDGs, the cru- cruisers, uh, the, D- the uh, Arleigh Burke class destroyers, and uh, we're starting to respond to that by uh, supplementing the crews. Okay, but I just point out if we know that somebody's wor- working a 100 hour work week, I'm not sure we need a study. It's frustration from Senator McCain. And, uh, and good for yeah. him. I mean, you know, really, it's just common sense at some point that a 100-hour work week, I don't care what you're doing, you know, driving a truck, you know, passing laws. I mean, you know, the at some point, you know, you're, you're going to, it's going to catch up with you. And again, if you've ever, you know, for people who've been on a, a, a DDG or a cruiser, particularly in the areas where they're looking at the screens that, um, you know, tell what's going on out there. These are darkened rooms. I mean, you're you're really almost like in a um, you know like a photo lab. You know, with the the, the low lighting because it obviously makes the uh, the screens easier to follow. But I'll tell you, it's it's a really kind of t- you know when you're talking about sleep deprived people, it's just not. It, we've got to do better than that. So the submarine fleet again, just to go back to that, they actually changed the sleeping rules, the circadian. Um, requirements so that they, they now go to eight-hour um, sleep shifts. Traditionally, historically, it was six hours for many, many years. But the undersea research lab down in Groton, which is kind of the, the, you know, the MIT of the submarine fleet in terms of studying these kinds of issues, after an exhaustive analysis, they, they realized that it really was, it was starting to sort of snowball for sailors in terms of um, you know their their ability to function and um, and they they've changed that sleeping pattern and and the feedback so far has been very positive that you know mm-hmm. people are more alert you know you, you get a chance to just kind of let your body um, sort of hit the refresh button. I understand that some uh, commanders were let go. Um, this looks like it boils down to training issues and lessening some of these deployments. Uh, but have you been able to talk to the families of, of the two sailors who were lost? I mean, what's their reaction when they hear that that this was uh, human error that caused this? So, again, the, the um, I have not talked to them personally. And, again, that's something that, um, you know, I think all of us have to be very respectful of. Um, certainly indirectly, um, you know, we, we've gotten some feedback. There was a family from Maryland um, that was at one of the hearings that she, she was in attendance there, one of the moms there. And, you know, her, her incredibly impressive person, as you know, well as the, the families here from Connecticut, I mean, looked me right in the eye and just said, fix this. Period. Full stop. And she's absolutely right. We we owe it to those families to uh, to change what what's happening out there because there's sailors right now as we're we're sitting here that are um, you know doing important work for the country and we got to make sure that um, you know that we're doing everything we can to make sure that they come home safely. Mm-hmm. Let's get on to defense spending. So the House just passed a bipartisan bill. Uh, This will obviously impact uh, Connecticut because of the number of contractors we have in in the state, including EB. Can you walk us through that bipartisan bill? 
Sure. So um, the defense authorization bill, which Congress has passed every year for the last 57 years, um, you know, is, is uh, again, on its way to the president. It cleared the Senate uh, at the end of last week. And again, this sort of sets up the policy uh, for the next year for a whole variety of issues within the Pentagon, things like pay raise, 2.4 percent for people in uniform. Uh, No BRAC, uh, by the way, because there was a flurry of news in Connecticut that they thought there was going to be a BRAC round. Actually, Senator McCain was sort of pushing for it, but... um, that's not happening. Again, that was not included in the measure. And, and when it, you say BRAC, so not uh, closing sorry, the, Yeah, uh, the base bases. closing. Mm-hmm. That's correct. The, um, and Sea Power, uh, we obviously, we do the, the shipbuilding plan for the country. And, um, you know, last year under the Obama administration, the force structure assessment was released, which basically was the uh, Navy's strategic review about what's uh, needed um, in terms of you know, not just the present, but also what's projected out there. Um, they boosted the projected size of the fleet from 308 ships, which is where the, the trajectory was. And again, a lot of that work has been showing up here in, in Groton with a lot of new people getting hired uh, over the last couple of years to actually 355. And and the biggest sort of spike in terms of, you know, the fleet architecture, in terms of, you know, what types of ships uh, they're recommending to boost we're submarines, okay? And, and there really is a, a very, there's a lot happening out there in terms of South China Sea and North Korea, but frankly, also in the North Atlantic, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, submarine activity happening there with the sort of resurgent Putin Navy that's happening that um, is, is uh, frankly, it caught a lot of people by surprise uh, because they thought, you know, the, those days were sort of behind us. But uh, for example, we've stood up, the air base in Iceland, um, the, in Keflavec, which is uh, where the old P-3 submarine hunters used to fly during the Cold War. Well, that's back in operation now with the new upgraded P-8s that are happening. And, it, and it's not happening in a vacuum. It's just it's out there. So, um, you know, what what that means is that, um, you know, the, the boost and spike in work down in Groton, which uh, you know, I was sharing with you, that has gone from 10,000 to 16,000 this year, 10,000 back in roughly uh, about uh, 2010, 2011, we're up to, we, we passed the 16,000 mark. 3,000 hires this year. I mean, I just want to leave that and marinate in people's mind. 3,000, and we're talking about metal trades, engineering, and design uh, just in this year that's happened um, in, in Groton. And the projection is is that to, to hit the targets, um, even before we talk about going to a 66 fleet submarine fleet, which is what uh, the the force structure assessment called for, I mean, we're really looking at probably another 15,000 hires between now and, and 2020, the mid-2020s and 2030. Are there people in Connecticut that EB is able to hire well, that are qualified, a, or well, what's the latest? The Wall Street Journal actually had a big article just uh, last week that sort of raised that question. I mean, the good news is is that we're seeing, um, you know, a lot of uh, activity that actually has already been going on with the Workforce Investment Board in eastern Connecticut, which is sort of the employer uh, educator, um, you know, community uh, structure that has been put into place by the Federal Workforce Investment Act. And we've got some great leadership down there that have started up um, pre-apprenticeship programs and um, outside programs that um, has already been feeding this, you know, pipeline uh, into the hiring that I just described earlier. I, I was talking to a friend um, actually this morning whose brother just graduated Friday from a design uh, program that the Workforce Board uh, organized. There were 17 graduates, um, and they um, they have interviews already lined up with uh, Electric Boat to, to get a job. This morning, I, I check every morning in terms of what the job opening situation is. 
down there. It's kind of like that and how the Celtics did mm-hmm. last night. And uh, this morning, uh, it's 273 openings that are there. You know, I'm actually bullish on the fact that we're going we're gonna to hit that. The community colleges have been st- standing up, you know, metal trades program. Three Rivers has a sheet metal program, QVCC. Up in the quiet corner there, um, you know, has an advanced manufacturing program. Uh, MCC's open a program. The, the, the tech schools um, are really part of this whole sort of uh, process that's happening. That class that I talked about that finished on Friday was actually at Grasso Tech um, in, in Groton. Um, and, and by the way, at the same time this is all going on, Pratt & Whitney is also suddenly starting to get very much more engaged in terms of workforce development because they are going to see a spike in engine orders, uh, both military and commercial. You know, this is a problem that, uh, as I said, I, I really feel like Congress should be much more focused on because it's not just limited to eastern Connecticut and it's not just limited to Connecticut. The skills gap that's out there in our country um, – the Department of Labor has a, in addition to unemployment numbers, they also have a thing called the job openings report every month. And the September job openings report with 6 million jobs in the U.S. economy that um, are open right now, you know, some of that's just normal churn that's happening there. But some of it is this skills gap where employers are really struggling to to get people uh, plugged in to what are really not, you know, sort of uh, minimum wage jobs. We're talking about real um, family-supporting types of uh, employment. Uh, we know that uh, these uh, these uh, jobs through EB and other contractors, uh, they contribute to the Connecticut's economy greatly. Um, it's important for your district yep. especially. But there's also the flip side, uh, Congressman Courtney, when uh, we look we're no longer in the Cold War, so to speak. Uh, there, are, uh, there are a portion of Americans who wonder why the, the country continues to spend billions of dollars modernizing uh, you know these fleets, uh, the nuclear triad. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, why is the need there? So again, I, I think it's important to put it into context that you know I talked about a 355 ship navy. At the height of the Cold War, we were talking. We had close to a 600 ship navy. Okay, and we had you know m- many many more people um, in uniform. Um, we had many many more. Um, Planes and you know uh, uh, platforms throughout the the Pentagon here. So the 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 scope of what we're talking about here, it, you know, to to describe it as a new Cold War, I think, is a real overstatement. Medvedev, uh, Putin's uh, deputy, you know, was throwing that rhetoric around in, in Munich at a uh, European um, conference not too long ago. And and I uh, I don't I don't view it that way. Having said that, I mean, there's just no question we've got um, a, a rival and a challenger that has shown some real hostility in terms of just incursions into neighboring um, countries, Georgia, Republic, and Ukraine, as well as, uh, you know, obviously the, the cyber um, arena, which uh, is not just limited to the U.S., but also to Europe. But they're, they're, they're you know, we're seeing NATO allies now whose um, own defense budgets had been, you know, less than 2% of GDP, now starting to to really invest heavily because they're right there and they're seeing it happen. And nobody wants to start, um, you know, any kind of trouble out there. And certainly I'm not one of them, but I, I do think we need a Navy. And I do think that a lot of this work is about replacing the legacy fleets that are uh, retiring, the old Los Angeles-class submarines, are, which were built back in the 80s and 90s. They're coming to the end of their shelf life. And there's a need out there just to make sure that we've got that um, deterrent capability, which I think, frankly, right now in North Korea is very important. 
And, um, and, and I think the people down in, in that part of our state are doing good things for the country. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with us, Second District Congressman Joe Courtney. After the break, we're going to take more of your calls, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Second District Congressman Joe Courtney is live in studio with us. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Before we run out of time, I'm just going to try to do a lightning round with you, Congressman <laughs> Courtney. Uh, we did hear from a listener on Facebook who wanted to know your views on net neutrality. And we understand a political reporting FCC will repeal net neutrality rules, which means that this would rules that prohibit Internet service providers from blocking or slowing web tra- traffic or creating so-called paid Internet fast lanes. Uh, what's your reaction to that and what can be done? I think it's atrocious. And I think that the net neutrality rule that the prior FCC chairman, Tom Wheeler, put together was really balanced. And um, and and really, it is going to create the haves and the have-nots in terms of uh, internet access. This is a real hit on small business. I mean, one of the things that you know small businesses have been able to use is the, is the internet as a cheap way of marketing and advertising. And now, you know, this is just going to add another, uh, I think, unnecessary uh, cost to, to running a business. And, uh, and obviously, there's going to be an income disparity in terms of its Im- impact on people. Um, you know, a- again, I'm just kind of appalled that um, a-, a rule that really was very thoughtfully put together uh, by the prior chairman is just getting, you know, just swept away uh, with really little or, or no debate. Congress really should step in and protect that, that prior um, arrangement. Raymond's calling from Waterford. Raymond, go ahead with your question. Uh, good morning. I have uh, one uh, thank you, Joe, for your dedication and service. I really uh, know exactly what you do, and I really appreciate it. Thanks, Raymond. Would like I, I would like to understand uh, the national debt, how either party intends to pay it, pay it off, basically, or get it down so that it does not control our budget. I think you work a lot in that area, and I'd appreciate your thoughts. Sure. Real quickly, I mean, I think that um, you know there there. Candidate Trump actually talked about, you know, closing some loopholes on the campaign trail, which I think there'd be great bipartisan support for, uh, for example, the carried interest um, provision, which is, you know, I talked to accountants who just, you know, lose their minds talking about how unfair uh, that is that, um, you know, there are certain hedge fund managers who can claim a, a, a dividend tax rate. For use, you know, for basically being involved with other people's money. Um, again, that's a that's a, a no brainer that we could, um, you know, bring down the debt. And and I wish that that was part of the tax plan. It's not. Um, there are frankly ways that I think we can uh, reduce spending in the in the federal budget. And um, you know, one of the ones that I hear constantly in the district, and it's in their right, is just that uh, Medicare can be a better buyer out there in terms of services, particularly in the area of uh, prescription drugs. And that Medicare bill that I, I mentioned earlier actually incorporates those kinds of savings. So, again, that, that's the, the sort of, um, you know, spending side, uh, revenue side uh, way that um, really pretty, I think, consensus areas that we could move very quickly to help sort of narrow the, the deficit. Camilla writes on Facebook uh, about the DACA program for immigrant uh, youth, uh, undocumented youth, uh, that President Trump uh, ended that program. Uh, now Congress is currently working on the DREAM Act, a bipartisan solution, again, to give these youth uh, a pathway to citizenship. It's been a, a bill that's been reintroduced many times over the years. Uh, she wants to know uh, the best chance for the DREAM Act could be to be part of the end-of-year spending bill. And is this something that you would support? 
Absolutely. I mean, you're a very astute observer. Uh, there is a clean bill that's out there. Uh, unfortunately, um, it hasn't you know, been discharged to the floor for a vote, which I actually think it would pass if we had that, that chance. Uh, just for the record, we actually passed it in December 2010 in the House. I remember Luis Gutierrez, you know, openly weeping when that happened there. And uh, But in any case, um, you know, at this point, it, it does seem like the, the one sort of pathway is to get on a must-pass bill. Um, and, the, and the spending bill is the one that I think people are focused on. And um, I, I would just say stay tuned. Again, I, I wish we could just, you know, do a clean bill, get it to the president. He said he would sign it. And I, and I think we should take him up on his offer. I wanted to bring up uh, the opioid crisis uh, sweeping the country, also here in, in New England. A uh, question about the availability of fentanyl uh, and the fact that when you look at the overall drug deaths in the first part of 2017, a majority of them, fentanyl is uh, part of that. And we look at how it's a disproportionate effect on rural areas, including Norwich and New right. London, who you, who you um, represent. I mean, what are some solutions to help with that? I was under the impression that the ACA, under the ACA, there is, are uh, ways to help uh, people dealing with substance abuse, uh, addiction, uh, also treatment programs? Uh, what can be done? So again, ACA did provide a lot more uh, access to behavioral health. And um, again, as we were going through the ordeal of repeal, you know, that was a, a community that really um, ramped up loud and clear is that, you know, eliminating Medicaid coverage for behavioral health and the um, essential benefits in the uh, uh, you know Affordable Care Act uh, health plans would really be a huge step backwards. But having said that, I mean, we had the uh, DEA agent for New England with the New England caucus last week, uh, Mr. Ferguson, brief us up in terms of what's happening out there. The fentanyl um, spike that's happening in Connecticut, the figure he gave us was a 544% increase in, in fentanyl-related deaths in the state of Connecticut, which is just, uh, again, we sort of started with a low base, but still, that, that is a frightening trend. This stuff is poison. And um, th there are some good things happening um, in terms of DEA sort of um, using intelligence. And there's a sort of iron triangle between Mexico, Dominican Republic, and, and uh, the U.S. in terms of where this stuff is, is, is coming in from. So that, you know, the enforcement side on fentanyl, which again, I, I just think, um, you know, has got to be a, a part of a strategy here is important. Secondly, the president did issue that public health emergency to opioids, and I, you know, tip my hat to them. Um, and there, there were some changes, you know, administratively in terms of trying to, you know, uh, you know, eliminate some barriers for for treatment. But the the public health emergency fund has fifty seven thousand dollars in it for the entire country. So that's something that in that spending bill that Camilla asked about. You know, we we've got to get serious about sort of treating this, you know, like a a, a natural disaster in terms of uh, getting more help out there. Uh, Dan wanted to head back to the health care uh, issue. Dan from Marlboro, go ahead with your question. Hi, this is uh, Dan from Marlboro, Connecticut. Hi, I just want to say, we, I don't have time to, to ask the last part of it. I will call your office, sure. Joe. But um, your picture's on the piano in this house, let me tell you, as far as preserving the submarine service, advancing it, and also keeping the skill base intact that will be needed to build future classes of submarines. That is extremely important work, and uh, it, it, it must be done because our submarine force 
is is very critical to the future. I just want to say one more thing. Don't let our illustrious president mess with the F-35 program. Thank you very much, Joe. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> the comment field said you had a question about Obamacare, but okay. <laughs> never well, mind. Call the office. <laughs> um, before we run out of time, I did want to also bring uh, up the issue of, of crumbling foundations. Yes. This is something that homeowners around the state, eastern part of the state especially, are dealing with. I think uh, the, the state of Connecticut has uh, put aside some money to help but what are you doing on the federal side to help sure. these homeowners? Well, two things. Number one, uh, about a year ago, we got HUD to um, come forward and say that um, through the community development block grant programs and the HOME Act funding, uh, that there is opportunities for Connecticut to take advantage of it. And um, actually, one of the initiatives that the state is involved with is creating a fund for testing, which is a, you know, that's sort of a threshold issue for a lot of homeowners, and it's expensive. They did tap into a million dollars from um, CDBG to uh, help uh, create that fund for some, about six or seven communities out in eastern Connecticut. Uh, I frankly think we can do take more advantage of more HUD availability. There's a Section 108 anti-blight uh, program that um, is a loan guarantee for the state of Connecticut that people that the state should pursue, and the legislature, to their credit, put in authorizing language to to pursue that option. The second is getting. Um, a tax uh, write-off for uh, repairs and, and loss. And um, Congressman Larson and I have been working very closely with the Undersecretary of the Treasury, Dave Cotter, uh, to get a tax guidance issued that would clarify that for people who uh, have already suffered a loss or have taken the hit in terms of repairs will be able to, to write or deduct off their taxes. Uh, stay tuned, because I think um, you know we're we're going to get a decision really within a matter of days, and um, and it's something that we've worked with the homeowners. There was a huge uh, gathering in Ellington High School, right next door to where I live, uh, a couple Saturdays ago, and the the grassroots organic work that folks like Tim Heim and Brenda Draghi and others uh, has done has been quite extraordinary. I mean, this this thing wouldn't have happened in Hartford and some of the push in D.C. without uh, the the homeowners uh, doing it the old-fashioned way. They don't have a lobbyist. They don't have a pack. They're they're just out there, you know, doing what you're supposed to do in a democracy, which is petition your uh, elected officials. Uh, we had a quick uh, Facebook comment from Stephen, who writes, "How do we, as Connecticut residents with an entirely Democratic delegation, make an impact on legislation we oppose in a Republican-controlled D.C.?" You know, call and write. I mean, I was on the floor, uh, really, quote unquote, telling stories from my district that, uh, again, I think are helping with the echo chamber regarding state and local tax, medical expenses, etc. Um, if you have family in other parts of the state, you know, uh, Thanksgiving is a good time to, you know, kind of, you know, reestablish that network and encourage them to call member offices. Thirteen Republicans voted no, uh, which is uh, actually for them to vote no on a tax cut uh, is actually a pretty amazing event. But it was because of that that external pressure. I want to thank Second District Congressman Joe Courtney. We ran out of time before we really got going with yes. some of those calls. Can I'll we have back. you back? Absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much. Again, also thanks to uh, WMPR's Tucker Ives and producer Carmen Baskaff, uh, also Kion Wolf, our technical producer. I'm Lua, Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.